everybody. Rick Wagner here. Thanks for joining us again this weekend. Glad to have you back. I gotta say, we're at KNZZ 1192.7, KGLN 980 101.3. We're on the internet all over the place. And then we're on our podcast that you can listen to after the show. Just go to my webpage at the rickwagnershow.com or politicalviking.com if you jump there from uh, social media. Or, uh, you know, you can just go and ask it to play on your Alexa or your Google or whatever else you have. And uh, I'm surprisingly more places than I thought. <laughs> so thanks a lot again. So we doggies, we are in not in good shape in this country, are we? No sorry, Bob. I was uh, looking at stuff preparing for the show today, trying to stay upbeat. And I wanted to talk about D-Day, actually, to start with. And I know there's other things to talk about. And, of course, we could talk about Trump being indicted again and this kind of thing. Uh, and we'll, we'll mention that in a little bit. But I'll try and bring a little, but I hope a little different perspective or some new information to the things that you've heard a million times already. But this D-Day thing, remember, the 6th of June is the anniversary of D-Day. That was 79 years ago, right? And there was a great piece by, of course, Victor Davis Hanson. And I just wanted to bring some of the highlights to you. And and you can read it. Uh, I put the link up on our webpage, and you can find it there. But it just he's just such a does a good job. And what he's talking about is this huge, we all know this was a huge effort, this invasion, Operation Overlord. Well, as he points out, it's it was the biggest uh, <laughs> biggest amphibious landing since the Persians and the Xerxes invaded the Greek mainland in 480 BC. So it had been a while since this kind of power, man, ships, and equipment had been amassed. And he said something that I was not aware of, or if I was, it had slipped my mind that there had been an earlier invasion uh, on Normandy. It was a raid, really by Canadians uh, at Dieppe in August of 1942, and the Germans had forced that out. That wasn't anything like Overlord, but it showed how adroit the Germans were at repulsing amphibious landings. And remember that they knew we were coming. They just, we just couldn't hide this huge buildup of troops uh, from them. We tried to at least misdirect them. Some of you are familiar with you know, the inflatable tanks and so forth and moving Patton up to a certain part of England that made it look like they were going to try and land at Calais, which makes sense because Calais is the closest point between Britain and France. But all in all, they knew it was going to be somewhere along this 50 to 75 miles of coastline, and they were pretty much ready for it when they saw all the ships massing and things like that. Our misdirection was only going to work so much. And they had to have so many troops landed there, and this is something that Hansen points out, and I'm quoting from some of this that they had to have naval and air superiority to do it. They could not have any German ships, you know, sailing into the channel and breaking up the armada. Obviously, they would have been in real trouble if they had, but it also could have been very disastrous in terms of the landing craft and so forth, or just some of the troop carriers. And so to get there, this is something we always forget. It isn't just the fighting men, right? It's the logistics and support it's the gasoline, the ammunition, the ambulances, the everything that goes along with this that has to be at the coast at the same time as the men are trying to get there. Because when they get in there, they're going to need to be resupplied, and they're going to be supplied quite quickly and for a while. And we didn't have any kind of port along that coast at all. The Allies had to bring everything with them. They brought some temporary floating uh 
sort of docks or port that they were trying to get in out there so they could unload things. They actually had to build a gasoline pipeline it drug across the channel so they could get gasoline over there. Remember, I mean, not everything's electric like it is now. You know, those electric tanks they want and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, we might just surrender now if that's our ideas. But this was gasoline, and, of course, a lot of the things also ran on diesel. So it had to be transferred. And they had to come up with different kinds of ships to transport this heavy armor. And, you know, they used gliders to try and secure portions inside, and that went kind of sideways on people because... The gliders got blown off course, and the rally points for some of the paratroopers and the glider pilots became confused, and it was really a dangerous and difficult thing. And all along this this coastline, uh, people were trying to come come on onto the coastline, and actually Omaha Beach, well, where the Americans were mainly landing, was the, the most difficult and dangerous one of the bunch. And we're still not really sure how many people died there. Uh, he points this out. Um, Hansen says that the best guess is there were probably 10,000 casualties uh, at that landing. Probably 4,500 of those would be dead. Uh, he said that uh, over, well over, he says 400 soldiers were killed, wounded, or captured every hour of the first day. And most of that happened along, of course, Omaha Beach, which was the most heavily defended. During Operation Overlord, which took, what, seven weeks? Yeah. Uh, the combined German and Allied casualties, according to Hansen, exceeded 400,000. And 20,000 French civilians were killed uh, during the invasion and Operation Overlord over the next seven weeks. And then he asked the question, and I think this is one we really want to get to. How and why did the Americans at Omaha charge right off the landing craft into a hail of German machine gun and artillery fire, despite being mowed down in droves? Well, he says they believed the United States, that the generation had emerged from the crushing poverty of the Great Depression to face reality that the Axis powers wanted to destroy their civilization and their country. And they were confident in American know-how. They were convinced they fought for the right causes. They were not awed by traveling thousands of miles from home to face German technological wizardry, veterans of the years of battle experience, and ruthless martial code. For the Germans, many of them, they'd been moved from the Eastern Front. The men at Omaha did not believe America had to be perfect to be good just far better than the alternative. Very true. We're in a bad spot with that kind of thinking now. They accepted that periodically some Americans, usually those in the prime of life, with the greatest futures and the most to lose, would be asked to face certain death in nightmarish places like Omaha, in a B-17 over Berlin, or the horror jungles of the Pacific. And you know, as he points out, the least that we can do is remember who they were, what they did, and how much we owe them. It's something we have to be reminded of all the time. And we should think about it not just on particular days, Memorial Day or D-Day, assuming that most of the people you talk to below the age of 30 know what D-Day is or when it is or anything really about it. I mean, if you're talking to people uh, in their 20s right now, you have to assume that they know very little about America. They're not going to know much about uh, what happened with George Washington at Valley Forge. They're not going to know probably particularly what century that the Civil War was fought, or why, or what states were involved, or even even if it was states. Uh, sometimes you see people questioning those age ranges, and they you know name other countries as part of the Civil War, not even understanding the term Civil War. So if you, if you don't have a grounding in that or understand how much people believed in the country, then you just assume the country just sort of existed. Um, you believe this nonsense that it was built upon 
a lot of evil somehow and that it somehow just existed because bad people took advantage of everybody else. And you can be made to believe that if you don't understand or have been taught or shown anything about how the country was founded and all the sacrifices people made and all the good things that were done and how far ahead we are above everybody else. We have a standard of living now, even as bad as it's getting. Now, I'm not comparing to what's happening in a major city. If you're walking down in San Francisco and you or you live in an apartment in certain parts of New York and you're afraid to go out during the day, especially at night, and you're afraid to ride the subway, that's starting to change the quality of American life. But in most places, in the red states especially, life's real pretty darn good, and it's much better than the European countries. But most of the Gen Z types and so forth, they don't know that. Uh, they don't really have anything to compare it with. They don't have anything to understand. So transferring that knowledge, transferring those ideas of history is a big part of what the school systems need to be doing. And, of course, it's not doing it. They're transferring useless information that is, at best, propaganda and, at worst, uh, damaging untruths. So the extent you can... Support people out there that are trying to teach what really happened in this country. And these school board elections that will be coming up this next election cycle, very, very important. We've got to keep on top of those because that's at the level we've discovered where all of the bad things start. All right, everybody. Thanks a lot for sticking around. I appreciate that. We are back. Rick Wagner here getting it right. Kansas KJLN, Internet, and all kinds of other places. Let's get back to talking about some of the stuff that I know you've heard about. Let's see if we can bring a little little different perspective to it. Let's talk about uh, Trump and, uh, of course, the feds, which uh, used to be when you were president that kind of the feds and you were a simpatico. But now, uh, no sorry, Bob. Depends on if you got an R or a D after your name is uh, how you get along with the federal agencies. President Trump is obviously, as many of you have been indicted, supposedly, according to ABC News, on seven charges relating to his handling of documents, classified documents uh, at his home in Mar-a-Lago. Now, there's a couple interesting things about this, some of it you'll have heard. One is that this indictment was brought in Miami. Now, we all know that the Justice Department and the Democrats and everybody else who wants to get Trump would love to have brought these charges in the District of Columbia, where really he wouldn't even have to show up. They could just send out, you know, some letters and people would check guilty off them and send them back and just save everybody a lot of trouble. They wouldn't need to hear any evidence. But they weren't able to do that, and I suspect from looking at it, it's the, the reason is that the locus of the activity that they're charging him with was all in Florida. His removal of those documents could be from D.C., but I think he has a lot more ability to argue that the forum for this these charges should be where this mishandling took place, supposedly. And remember, some of these charges are probably obstruction of justice, which is, uh, really a broad, broad term uh, that he was, you know, keeping them from doing their job in the federal government, right? The the, the FBI the, and all these characters. Uh, and obstruction of justice is pretty much anything that doesn't assist them if they're asking for help or sends them in a direction other than uh, assisting them, you know, trying to misdirect them or something. It's it's really broad, and it's, it's a kind of a go-to thing, right? It's sort of like... Uh, the lying to the FBI charge. It's also, they're process crimes, right? They're not crimes in and of themselves. They are crimes that arise during the investigation of what may or may not be a crime. Remember, if you 
lied to the FBI, even though they don't come up with an actual chargeable case, there's still a crime. Lying to the FBI, even though you may not have actually committed a crime, but you were not truthful in your discussion about some salient point as part of their investigation. Same way with the obstruction of justice. If you do things to obstruct their investigation in this very broad term, even though there was not an underlying crime that they came up with, there's still a crime having to do with the obstruction. So these process crimes are pretty nasty and pretty easy to have happen. And they can be manipulated in a way where the investigation itself can be targeted in such a way that the person that they're investigating has a lot of easy ways to fall under the rubric of uh, the sort of the overarching idea of obstruction sometime without that being even in their mind. So the lex- the nexus of this seems to be much more in Florida. Now, they don't like Florida because, of course, Florida is turning into a pretty red state, and they do not like that. But I believe that what's happened is that they examined it and realized that, you know, even if you had the most uh, outlandish federal judge allowing you to bring the uh, charge in, in D.C., that the appeals court would probably say, you know, I mean, there's just, too much of this happened in Florida, right? You need to do it down there. So they're stuck. Now, remember that the grand jury, and I don't know if I heard too many people talking about this, is not chosen like a jury you see on TV or if you've been on a jury panel. Uh, and some of you may have been chosen for a grand jury, but it's much less likely that if you've had any experience, it's probably a regular jury, uh, either in a criminal or civil case, where there's two sides there. There's the prosecution and the defense, and they question jurors, and they try and get rid of ones that they think are bad for them, keep the ones that are good for their theory of their case. A grand jury is not chosen that way. The grand jury is chosen from the people that are called into jury duty uh, by them by themselves. The prosecutors choose the grand jury. Uh, so you can imagine what the grand jury that they tried to choose in Miami probably looks like in terms of you know their predilections. Uh, that the prosecution will be looking for. Remember, Miami has uh, a lot of Cuban immigrants that are very conservative. Uh, and there they have, you know, a, it's turned into a, a more conservative city for a city of that size. I think, uh, well, I'm trying to remember the mayor's name. He's thinking about running for president. Uh, pretty competent guy, but he's a Republican. I think he's a Republican. Sure talks like, well, now when I said that, but it's a city that they probably would have preferred not to bring it in. Now, when they get a jury panel for the actual trial, if there is one, they're going to have to choose it from that surrounding area, the Miami and the surrounding area, whatever the district of that encompasses that district court were to be tried in. So it'll be interesting to see how that all shakes out, right? So that has yet to be determined. But we're going to have to just wait and see how that goes. I mean, as I, as I said on here before, I expected these indictments or charges to be brought up uh, serially. Uh, as soon as one dies down, uh, they'll bring another one. This is now the one in, oh, the charges in New York State, and I'm not talking about the civil case, but the criminal case that they, they brought uh, about. Oh, his monetary transactions and stuff there, which are essentially federal They have to have an underlying federal crime, which that DA does not have authority to prosecute as the predicate for why they're bringing the state charges. There's a real problem there. 
just in the way that things are charged. I doubt if we'll see much of that take hold on appeal, at least not very fast. But then this charge is going to be brought up. It's going to be in Florida. My guess is, my supposition, I suppose I should say, is that in the next month, month and a half, we'll see Georgia bring something in about election interference, where they say that you know the president was trying to pressure the Secretary of State, as I recall, in Georgia into finding votes. None of this stuff, when you look into it, seems to arise to a crime, even when you kind of you know, lean a little towards maybe you shouldn't have done that. It still does rise to a crime. It just doesn't in the side of the people that are wanting to bring these charges. This is to stop Trump by any means necessary. I think that the fact that they keep doing it tells us something about who they're really afraid of here. They're really afraid of Trump. They don't want him to have any opportunity to get in there. And at some level, they must worry that he might win somehow, and they have to bring him down. And they're just going to do this by tying him up. My guess is they're they're going to try and get another uh, gag order, stop him from talking about his case in, in uh, down in Florida and anything else they want to get. They tried to get a partial one in the case out of New York, and that hasn't you know done very as much as they wanted it to. Now his discussion about his civil case has brought about uh, another claim for damages from the person that uh, won that case in. Uh, New York. So it's it's constant lawfare, um, and it's going to be a serial situation. And they must be worried about DeSantis because uh, you may recall this week that Newsom, who is as empty ahead as you're going to see on top of somebody's shoulders, said that uh, he was considering charging DeSantis with kidnapping in California because he had transported, they'd flown in some uh, immigrants from Florida to Sacramento. That was followed up a couple days later by the Attorney General of California, who is really just a oof. He's uh, way out there. We got a couple of way out Attorney Generals. This guy's terrible. I mean, just look him up. And then there's Keith Ellison. Uh, I think I think he's in Minnesota, uh, and he's you know another cut from the Ilion Omar kind of cloth in terms of his. Uh, desire to do things that we think are terrible for the country. So he also said that he was looking into, by that I meant the Attorney General in California, that he might be looking at charging DeSantis with kid. Can you think of anything more ridiculous? And can you think of something that just a couple of years ago you would have regarded as absolutely, unbelievably unlikely? Right. And now you're like, geez, I hope that, uh, are they going to do that? I don't think they're going to have any luck with that on DeSantis, but it shows how their mind is now going to say, hey, remember this butterfly effect, how, you know, one group of uh, Democrats do something or progressives and it affects the little waves go across the country and touch the little antenna on people like Newsom. And, oh, we should do that. You know, what about DeSantis? He made me mad. He sent people here. And Newsom, of course, been warring with DeSantis because Newsom would love somebody to talk him into running for president. Except, you know, Joe's keep being in the way. Although, Joe might uh, just wander out of the back door of the White House sometime and disappear. So, these guys are keeping their powder dry to make sure if something happens, that they're still available. The Democrats, by the way, are still very afraid of, of Robert Kennedy Jr., right? RFK Jr., who, let's, let's not kid ourselves, he's got some ideas we like now, some specific ones. 
He's not a conservative. By any no. <laughs> He's not somebody you would want to be president. Not when you could choose Trump, DeSantis, really half of the Republican field who you would choose over him. Not Chris Christie, for instance. But they're worried about it because there are a lot of people that are just dissatisfied with Biden. They don't want him to run, and it's making them upset. And they're talking about voting for RFK. And that can hurt him. I mean, if they scrape off, you know, 5 6 7%, uh, which is a lot in a, in a candidate like that, uh, in an election, that would be bad. So they need to keep him as running as a Democrat so they can get him off the ticket everywhere. They don't want him to peel off and run some third-party candidacy because that could really damage them. They've managed to beat everybody over the head uh, and keep them out of being third parties. So we'll see. Hi, folks. Thanks for sticking with us through the break there where, you know, we actually make the money for the radio stations and uh, everything else, I suppose. But we're back again, so here we are. I thought we'd uh, continue a little bit about the Trump thing. As like I said, I know you guys heard it endlessly, so I don't want to have too much time on it. But I was thinking that I I was trying to remember, and certainly I heard a lot of commentary this uh, week, well, since Thursday, I guess, about uh, this indictment. And I don't think that I've seen or heard much about the makeup of the grand jury, which we talked about in the last segment, which I think is really important to understand that the grand jury, the people that are on it, are people that are chosen by the prosecution. Now, the prosecution already has an idea about what they want before they ever go into this thing. So they get to choose the people that sit there. And I only heard one person mention, and I'm sure there were others, but I was listening to a lot of little bits and pieces this uh, end of this week, uh, that a grand jury indictment does not require, uh, it doesn't, does not require a unanimous decision. Usually it's just a plurality, right? So if there's say 26 people on the grand jury, if you get 14 of them, then that's it. It's all it takes. And I'm reasonably sure that's how it's going to be operating down in the Southern District in Miami because it's in uh, Dade County. Now, they, they do have some challenges down there with a the real jury. We talked about a little bit last time is that in that district in Miami, and there's really, <laughs> it just actually gets more conservative in the other districts there for the most part, is a lot of or are a lot of uh, refugees from Cuba, as we mentioned, I think in the last segment, uh, some people from Venezuela and people who have come here from countries that they really don't like the government being essentially a banana republic. Some have come from countries that were literally banana republics. And remember, we get that phrase, a banana republic. Really, it's a, a phrase that fits more into the 60s, maybe the early 70s and, and back. And that is when Two or three of these countries in this, in particular in Latin America had a, an economy based really on bananas and one or two fruit products. And some of you, if you're interested in uh, seeing how things were kind of crazy with big companies down there, you can look at like United Fruit. I mean, it wasn't quite like the East India Trading Company, but they had a lot of effect on politics in Latin America during this time. But because the... Economies were so dependent on selling these products, and they were limited amounts of products. And bananas were really big down there, as as we know, even now. That if the price of bananas changed, or there was some problem with that, the economy would crater, 
and they would have a, a new presidency. And the other part of that was there was a lot of outside weird interference in their politics that had to do with the big companies down there, both uh, domestic and foreign, that were making all of their money off of this fruit. And so they tended to be very corrupt and very unstable. So that became this banana republic kind of thing. And that's where we get that from. Now, are we getting more corrupt? Oh, yeah. Are we getting more unstable? I'm afraid we are. I, I don't think I'm afraid. I know we are. Look at look at every every time you turn around and you see some kind of polling about people's, you know, respect for the Constitution, uh, how they feel about the country, uh, how things are going. I mean, just any direction you want to look, things are sort of flying in all directions. It's sort of like, you know, there's no arrow pointing one way or even one big arrow pointing one way and a lot of little ones pointing the other ways. It's all in all directions. There's not even any particular momentum in any direction. I mean, it seems like, and I think this is more a product of the media, that there's a huge momentum towards becoming incredibly weirdly focused on sexuality and racism. Now, I don't have to tell you guys how dangerous that is. And at the same time, it's very useful to certain politicians to gather a base. And the way they gather their base is by telling these people that everybody else is against them. Every problem that's ever occurred to them is the result of some other group. And that the only way that they can be saved is one to support them, their new, this new Messiah that arises from some political parties, the same political party, and to go vehemently against everybody that isn't them by that isn't that particular party. But eventually it becomes just that. It, they start rebelling against everybody that isn't them. And that becomes this tribalism. And we see this more and more. And I'm a little worried. I'm not a little worried. I'm really worried about what I see in the cities. There's a lot of attacks in the cities, and they seem to have commonalities, crazy people, attacks that, uh, that have to at least appear to have some sort of racial animus to them. And it's not white supremacy. It's just people who see others as the enemy and they see themselves as downtrodden and they've been told over and over and over again that the reason they're downtrodden is because of some other group. Then in order to keep that essentially lie at this point, some of these things were true 100 years ago, 75 years ago, but not now. But in order to keep that misrepresentation alive, they have to be deprived of an actual education. They have to be deprived of the ability to say, no, that didn't happen that way. I know my history, and I trust the history that I was taught to be reasonably correct. They're not given that opportunity. So they are not armed in any way to have any kind of judgment about this or to defend themselves against this onslaught of what the media loves to call now misinformation, which is a hilarious thing if you th- if you like irony. Because they are the largest purveyors of misinformation. Between the media and universities and the politicians out there who like to make speeches about these things, all of whom talk about how they're trying to inform people, very little of what they are that are informing people, and I think you should put that in quotes, is simply misinformation or purposeful mischaracterization. 
I've gotten to where I, I, I can't hear the word misinformation anymore because it's become such a catchword for conservatives shut up. And that's a shorthand way of saying that. Conservatives shut up and because that's what misinformation is. And misinformation can't possibly come from somebody on the left. It only can come from someone on the right, at least if you listen to popular culture. It's like rule of law. I know we talked about that last week about I think rule of law means different things to different people now. It used to have sort of a, a nexus there of agreement. It may go in different directions with certain people, but there was a large overlap between what one person thought about the rule of law meant and what someone else. Now, there, I don't think there's hardly any with some of these people. I don't think Chuck Schumer, and I talked about this last week, I know. I don't think Chuck Schumer's idea of rule of law or what he really thinks about it has much to do with what the average person who's trying to make a living in a small town or a medium-sized city in the heart of the country who's actually making something that people can use or growing food that they eat or transporting things that they need or any of those things or making things that go into that kind of stuff has in mind. I don't think that there's any overlap, any significant overlap at all. So when I hear the term now, it's, it's to bludgeon somebody with. Look up the Jack Smith, the prosecutor for Donald Trump. I listened to part of what he had to say. Rule of law. When a country, I mean, it was all this high sounding baloney. Any of which, if it were true, he wouldn't be standing there. If you actually believed what you were talking about, you wouldn't be doing this. If you take a step back and look at it, you just, you just see the hypocrisy just running out of the thing. At the same time, we just hear from every commentator out there, oh, Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, Hunter Biden. They are completely correct. It's the lack of motion on those that's the problem. Not that they're corrupt politicians. Good Lord, they're people corrupt politicians like those dudes since, you know, people decided to get together and have a politician. But the fact that there's absolutely no movement on them and that there is so much evidence to at least warrant serious and speedy investigation, and that's hap- it's not happening. That's really worse than the actual crime. It is worse than the crime because what they have done may be a criminal act and harms the country. It is nothing compared to the harm to the country that comes from not investigating it and not getting to the bottom of it and not being serious about it and not going in there with a preconceived notion of what you're going to do when you come out, which is to say, eh, nothing to see here. That's much more injurious than what they've done. So in, in many instances, I think in all instances, except for, you know, there's a, there's a few serious crimes out there that, that can be committed, but in the political crime scene, which is pretty much what's going on in Washington now, Merrick Garland and Christopher Ray and the people that are running these federal agencies that are bringing these charges are much more culpable than Joe. First of all, I don't think Joe knows what he's, even remembers what he did. I think he can easily laugh these things off because he doesn't remember if somebody says, you know, it was Zelensky, uh, unless they show him a picture and tell him who he is, he thinks he was a pony. You know, it's like, you know, who, what? You know, so he has to be reminded. He probably is one of the few people that can actually say, I don't remember. And you have to say, mm, good chances remember. But I think Garland and these people are actually much more culpable than these politicians because they protect them and they enable them. And in a sense, they propel them forward because the less consequences there are, this is no different than 
not having bail or prosecuting people that are mugging folks in New York, for instance. It's just on a larger scale. Because if you're not prosecuting someone who you catch doing this, and you know, without a doubt, that this person will do it again and again and again, unless some kind of steps are taken, and then that might even be enough, but at least you're taking steps, and you let them go with that knowledge, you're doing a tremendous amount of harm, not only to the original victim, but to future victims. So when you go to a larger arena, like prosecuting former presidents and this and that, and not prosecuting people or investigating them. Let's just say just investigating them seriously with no preconceived ideas about the outcome. You're doing the same thing. You're not only allowing what they did to go by the by, but you're encouraging more of it, and you're creating more victims out here because they will continue to do it, and other people who are creeping around thinking about doing it realize, wait a second, you know, I'm of the correct political party, and I'd like to do that too. They're getting away with it. I'll do it. So you're create by doing that. Are you not only pushing justice? In other words, trying to get some full measure of the law against the lawbreaker, but you're creating more lawbreakers because you've surrendered deterrence. Because what you've said is it's okay. Here's the circumstances that it's going to be okay, and if you follow in those circumstances. You can do that, and we're going to put a blind eye to it, which is going to create even more victims. And some of this stuff, the victims are the American people, and we always say that like, you know, it's kind of smeared around a little bit, and it's like, well, who in particular? Well, everybody, when you start doing this, because look what's happened in the Ukraine. And I do not understand, well, I'm afraid I do understand, I guess, the reasoning here. We have committed to the Ukraine in a crazy way, just a crazy way in terms of supplying money and equipment. And I'm, you know, about 50% convinced we have advisors creeping around on the ground in Ukraine, show these people how to use this equipment. Some of the stuff isn't something that you just send a three page manual to someone and, you know, get translated into the Cyrillic alphabet for the Ukrainians and they know how to run that stuff. You have somebody train them. Now we've talked about Having them trained by Americans, uh, I think the best way to train stuff like that is on the ground with it. So I, I'm, I'm about 50% sure that if we really looked into this, we will find American advisors here and there uh, teaching them how to use these weapon systems and so forth. Just a guess on my part. But nevertheless, I've never seen us commit to this. We are committing to the Ukrainian area minus the troops like we did in Vietnam. And at least we articulated a reason for that. A lot of people think it was a great reason. They've articulated a reason for this. A lot of people don't think it's a great reason. But you have a hard time understanding how the Ukraine became so important and what makes it above Vietnam and things like this is nobody thought that LBJ was doing business in Vietnam. LBJ's son wasn't a trading partner with people in Vietnam. Money wasn't flowing out of Vietnam to LBJ and his family. We have all of that going on here, at least arguably. And why doesn't that seem to encourage some thought that there's a connection between 
what those folks were doing in Ukraine and what's happening now, at least to the to the extent that we're so adamant about it. Now, we can take the sort of bizarre comments from some people, the Lindsey Graham of it all. I don't understand Lindsey Graham. He's he said some good things and then he said some stuff that is just. I don't get it. I mean, his comments about, you know, it's uh, all good news, essentially, I'm paraphrasing here, you know, to, to see Russians killed. And it's, I mean, we're not we're not at war with Russia. We're, we haven't declared what if, if if you want that, Lindsay, then ask the president for a declaration of war. Do I th- want that? Heck no. But Lindsay sir talks like it. So if you want to talk like that, and you want to these people are our enemies, enemies to the point where you're having them killed, then you ought to, you know, go all in. This kind of rhetoric doesn't help anybody. And if you say anything about it, then you're some kind of stooge of Putin. Come on. Stooge of Putin? I, I think that what we are is we're trying to prevent a growing and dangerous situation in Central Europe. I thought that's what we were trying to do for a long time. And we seem to have lost our minds. But at least could we ask the questions about why the Biden and then now the Democrats got on board with it, of course, uh, with Biden, you know, it was so connected. And think about this. I mean, forget. Remember Biden and, and you getting a prosecutor fired that was looking into to uh, Hunter's behavior there. And then the fact they received millions of dollars from stuff and the whole barisma, it's just gone. It just disappeared. They put it in a space capsule and fired it up to the moon. Nothing about it. And I haven't looked, but I wouldn't be surprised if you started trying to probe around that investigation on the Internet and start Googling things. You have a hard time finding all the stuff out there. I've noticed this. A lot of people have noticed that certain topics get harder to find, just like certain websites get harder to find from time to time. I mean, the amount of regulation, not from the government, but from these tech companies that is imposed on us. Very frightening. Because we have, and I think foolishly, surrendered ourselves to these characters. Like I said before, we thought that, you know, they gave us free stuff. Oh, I can go, it doesn't cost me anything to be on uh, Facebook. You know, uh, what about Instagram and all this stuff? So, oh, yeah, well, some of it's advertising, but the most of it is all about you. You and I giving them information which they sell to other people to use to market to us. And that's in the best-case scenarios. TikTok, I think there's a lot more going on with that. Think of all of the images that China gathers from all over the United States of everything in the world and everything people see and do. Now, do I think that these poor guys sitting someplace in a control room outside of Beijing or in Wuhan or someplace else watching you know, millions of hours of TikTok videos of people dancing around and trying to eat whipped cream cans or whatever they're doing. Do I think that's punishment? Oh, yeah. Now, if they have any sense, they're working on artificial intelligence to be able to go through that. And I'm sure that they have some algorithms that, you know, tag certain places, certain behaviors and so forth. And they're probably working hard because I suspect that the people that they've had, if they are actually reviewing this, have long since lost their minds and are sitting in a in a little room someplace uh, making things out of string uh, after they watch a lot of that. But think of all that they are able to tune into uh, by looking at that. I mean, we, it's, it's like they've got cameras everywhere. 
Millions of cameras all the time looking at all sorts of stuff. Most of it's stupid. But some of it probably has some use. And also they're able to manipulate, you know, kind of our culture with it. Um, we are not clear at all about how things go viral on TikTok. Does the Chinese government manipulate that to put ridiculous things or troubling things or stuff that they think uh, harms our culture, makes them more trending or this not? We don't know anything about that. I wouldn't be surprised. I think that if we were in charge of something like TikTok in China, we would probably do that. You know, weaken their culture. I mean, why not? They see us as an enemy. I mean, I, I've got, you know, don't forget um, what's going on in Taiwan. We keep trying to, we keep trying to, you know, write that off like that was a, you know, Taiwan is like, ah, oh, well, it's kind of stabilized now maybe or something. No, it hasn't. I mean, just this last week, there's a Chinese warship. We've got, uh, we've got some, well, missile cruisers and a couple things like that that are, that are trying to go back and forth through the Taiwan Strait, uh, which, by the way, China doesn't call it that. And lately, we have been getting a lot of interference from the Chinese Navy, which, by the way, is now larger than ours. And there's one where we had a, a destroyer class that a Chinese ship, you know, just cruised in front of it at 150 yards away. That's a pretty aggressive act and very dangerous. Uh, anybody that has had a boat on the lake, much less something the size of these things, knows it takes a little while to turn, right? So these guys are cutting it close in front of you just to make the whole thing seem dangerous. And they're just seeing what we're going to do. Well, apparently nothing. And I'm not sure we can do anything at this point. I mean, what are we supposed to do now? I mean, at a time when our Navy was built up, and our Navy is way under strength now, way under strength, what it was even four or five years ago, uh, certainly from what it was 10 or 15 years ago, we would have projected more force into that area and just made it a whole heck of a lot harder to do this kind of games. We don't have, we don't have the ships to do it now. We're strung out too far. We haven't invested the money. Uh, remember, if you put 3% more into the defense budget, with inflation, you're actually cutting the defense budget. Now, do I think that the Department of Defense uses the money wisely? Oh, my gosh, no. <laughs> In the past, they used it terribly. I mean, remember the 90s and early 2000s with, you know, the $50 hammers and the $1,000 toilets and all that kind of crazy stuff. No. And now we're seeing, you know, I mean, you've got to have the budget go up. You've got to have some drag shows on the bases, and you have to, you know, spend money on uh, maternity flight suits and stuff. So, yeah, no, I don't think they use it very well. We still got to keep them alive. We got to pay attention to it. Paying attention, folks. That's the best we can do right now. And vote locally. Talk to you next week.